Hello and welcome to My Boga Conversations. My name is Lee Albert and this is MyBoga.com. Okay, I'm here today with a, a lady from uh, Brooklyn, New York, who uh, I, I have the great pleasure to be speaking with because uh, she comes to the, t- to the table with ideas and insight into the nature of the Ibogaine community today, which, as we all know, is mostly unregulated and that is causing problems. And it would be a shame if those problems were to prevent the uh, successful acceptance of Ibogaine into mainstream medicine. So it's great to have people like this lady who is about to speak with me. Uh, Juliana Mulligan from uh, Brooklyn, New York, because her work and her heart is dedicated to looking at these problems and providing solutions. And I'm hoping that from this conversation, ideas will emerge that uh, will be can be taken up and will be beneficial to the community. But Juliana herself, uh, you know, went for treatment um, back in 2000 and, uh, well, she'll have to confirm that with us in a moment. And when she tells about November 2011 um, and had an unusual experience for which, uh, you know, I suppose... Set her up for the kind of work she's now doing. So, it's a great pleasure and a delight, and I'm really, you know, pleased to have this opportunity to speak with Juliana. So, hello, Juliana. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm no. really excited to share about my experience and work. Yes, uh, and you, ha- you know, having spoken to you already, you you are a mind of ideas and insight. So. Perhaps we can start maybe with your own treatment. How did that go for you? That was in November 2011. Yes. Yeah, we can start there. Um, Just a little background to that. I was a heroin and opioid user for seven years, having gone through um, like the standard treatments that are available in the U.S., like mainstream rehabs. I did that twice. Methadone methadone maintenance, suboxone maintenance. I went to 12-step meetings quite often, and none of that really resonated with me. Um, And so eventually, um, I was living in Bogota in Colombia and had relapsed for the, you know, thousandth time. And I was just really fed up and sick of all of the things that opioids were bringing into my life. And um, I had known about Ibogaine for a few years. Um, Somehow, since I was a teenager, I had always been connected to people involved with psychedelics in some capacity. So a friend had told me about Ibogaine and it was always just felt kind of out of reach for me. But in, by the nearing the end of 2011, I felt like really that was my last hope. Um, and the really the only thing that I hadn't tried. So I started researching clinics and I found, I called a couple of different clinics and even underground providers in the US. And the person I resonated with most was a man named Lex Kogan, who at the time was working in Guatemala. Um, So I decided to go to him and I left my life in Bogota um, and I didn't go back after that actually to live. Um, So I left my life, I flew to Guatemala and um, I arrived to the clinic. Um, I didn't really know the safety protocols with Ibogaine until about a year later. Um, but 
now looking back, I can see there was a number of ways that they made really major mistakes with my treatment. Um, I was, I had an extremely high opioid tolerance. Actually, when I arrived, they told me they had never treated such a high tolerance. Um, I had been doing fentanyl in Colombia, um, specifically the patches, because I was pretty much able to buy whatever I wanted over the counter there without a prescription. And so I had gotten my tolerance extremely high. Um, and one of the things about Ibogaine is it's not very safe to do fentanyl so close to Ibogaine treatment because there are cardiac side effects with fentanyl. And he had told me to not do the fentanyl in the days before the treatment, but they literally booked me for the treatment four days before I went. So there wasn't that much of an opportunity to switch. Um, so I flew there having done fentanyl a few days before. I think I did a really high dose of morphine um, on my way there. And I arrived, um, they, I arrived on a Friday night. They gave me some Oxycontin and to stabilize me and started treating me the next day. Um, one of the other things that they made a mistake with is you really want to make sure people's bowels are working properly beforehand. And they didn't because they had run out of um, the laxative that they use. And I remember we were driving around to all these different pharmacies over the city looking for this laxative that they couldn't find. And so they didn't get to give that to me and make sure that, you know, my digestive system is working properly. And as many people know, people with an opioid dependency have like serious problems with constipation and, or they just haven't even eaten properly in months. Um, and so they really rushed me into doing Ibogaine before I was stabilized with my opioid dose before I was really eating healthy, before my digestive system was working. Um, we just kind of jumped into dosing Ibogaine really less than 24 hours after I had arrived. Um, so the first thing that I recall is after they started giving me the Ibogaine, you know, they had told me my withdrawal was going to start to go away with the more Ibogaine they gave me, which didn't happen. And I think it's because my tolerance was so high that the Ibogaine just wasn't touching the withdrawal symptoms. So they kept giving me more Ibogaine. They also started giving me Valium because I couldn't relax because the withdrawal was um, becoming really unbearable. And then at a certain point, I just don't remember anything. And then I'm assuming that was because of the Valium that they kept giving me. Um, the next thing I remember is uh, this must have been like a... I don't even know how much longer, 12 hours later, 15 hours later, I remember waking up, throwing up. Um, I definitely still was like under the influence of Ibogaine, but didn't seem to be like in like the main flood period. And I remember getting up to go to the bathroom and then I just, instead of a blackout, I had a whiteout. Everything turned white. And I had a vision that I was on um, a bus in my hometown going towards the hospital on an empty bus. And then um, I came out of that vision. They were trying to put IVs in me and like desperately, there were two nurses at the clinic trying to get an IV in my arm and all of my veins were flat and they just kept poking me, poking me all over and couldn't get anything. Um, and then they called a paramedic. The paramedic came, gave me some oxygen. He was finally able to get an IV and at this point, I still didn't really know what was going on or why I needed to go to the hospital. Um, they did finally tell me at some point that my EKG was bad. Um, as probably been discussed in previous podcasts, Ibogaine has cardiotoxic side effects. Um, so, yeah, I had a bad EKG. They took me to, uh, like, the Guatemalan State Hospital, which 
when we arrived there, it looked kind of like a war zone. I remember being just impossibly thirsty and nobody had any water to give me to drink. The hospital didn't quite know what to do with me. You know, I look like a young girl. They don't know what Ibogaine is. There's no reason they should believe I have a bad EKG at my age. And so they gave me an x-ray and then basically said, we don't have time for you. So we went to a second hospital, which didn't, which turned us away immediately. We went to a third hospital, which took us and a very young kind of inexperienced doctor um, looked at my EKG, kept me for maybe like eight hours and basically said like, well, I think it's okay now. Like you got a little bit better <laughs> and it, like didn't really have anything to say. So mm-hmm. they sent me back to the clinic. Um, I remember getting back to the clinic and talking to somebody um, on the phone and they did another EKG and suddenly it was like, we have to go back to another hospital. The EKG got bad again. At this point, I didn't know what that meant. And I find out later that what was happening is I had a very prolonged QT interval that was going into a deadly rhythm called torsades, um, which is basically like if you look at a printout of torsades, it just looks like lines going up and down all over. It doesn't even look like a regular rhythm. There's no rhythm left. Um, so my heart was going into torsades and we arrived to a fourth hospital, which also wasn't taking us seriously. And they told us to go sit down in the waiting room. And then I hit the floor and I don't remember this at all, of course. Um, and then that was the first cardiac arrest that I had. So they resuscitated me. They took me to the ICU. They had to resuscitate me five more times. And I think it was, it was a total of six cardiac arrests that happened over a period of, I think, 12 hours. So after the last, after the sixth cardiac arrest, um, the doctor who was treating me realized that I needed an external pacemaker, but that hospital didn't have the proper equipment and didn't even have a cardiologist on staff. So the clinic doctor, uh, Dr. Francisco Lopez is his name. He had to like assemble his own team of doctors that he, that he's friends with that didn't even work there. So I think it was three cardiologists that he knows came to the hospital. One of them brought a pacemaker from home to implant in me at at this hospital. Um, So I I had already had um, a surgical central line inserted because my veins uh, just couldn't hold. Um, So I'm not even sure when that, that must have happened in the period of the cardiac arrest because I woke up with, I still have scars. There's, there were three lines going into on one side and two lines going in on another right underneath my collarbone. Um, so I had this surgically implanted line already in. And when the doctor came with the external pacemaker, she placed it, it goes underneath your clavicle bone and into your chest cavity. And they were having trouble placing it. And to this day, I still don't understand why they were saying that something that my left ventricle was bigger than it was supposed to be. I still don't know what that was about. And I remember being awake and um, they were trying to place the pacemaker and there's no, you have no nerve endings in the chest cavity. So you can be awake for this. And I remember watching it on the ultrasound screen as they tried to place it into the right spot. Um, So that was interesting. And so then I had this pacemaker and I'm in the ICU in Guatemala for about 10 days. And, you know, I kind of didn't even really care that all that stuff had happened. Like my main thing was I was astounded that I wasn't in withdrawal. And my mom tells me that all I kept saying to her on the phone was I'm not in withdrawal. I'm not in withdrawal. And she's like, I know you told me. Cause for me, after years of kicking habits and like knowing what kind of, 
you know what kind of a withdrawal you have coming for you. Like you get to know how bad it's going to be based on how much you've been using. And I had a really killer withdrawal coming for me. And then to wake up and not be sick was like quite a shock. And so I was, you know, I had some discomfort. I was a little bit restless and like really bored because there was no TV or nothing for me to read. Um, But overall, I felt like really inspired. The usual like guilt and shame that accompanies a withdrawal wasn't there. And instead of that, I felt like suddenly I that all those seven years I had suffered and been through jail and all this crazy stuff, overdoses and getting beaten up and homelessness, suddenly all of that made sense. And I knew that it was my training to do the work I wanted to do. And I knew I wanted to do work related to Ibogaine. And I felt really excited about that. And I was just like, can't wait to leave this hospital, like raring to go. And honestly, I think that what happened to me was more traumatic for um, Lex and the doctor and my mom than me. Like, I kind of was like, cool. I'm like, I feel really good actually. And, you know, after 10 days, um, they turned off the pacemaker and my heart was back to normal because the cardiotoxic side effects of Ibogaine are temporary. It's not like permanently damaging. And, you know, I've had tests since and there's, there's no trace that I've had any problem with my heart. Um, so yes, so you, you, you've when you came home, I presume you you went to a cardiologist or somebody to have yourself. No, actually, out. I didn't. I didn't because they checked me out there in Guatemala as I was leaving the hospital, and everything was completely clear. Okay. I, I didn't go to a cardiologist in the U.S. until like four years later, and mm. they couldn't believe my medical history. Like they, they don't know. People don't know what Ibogaine is. They're just like in shock when you tell them these stories. Right. And I had like a echocardiogram, and I wore a Holton monitor, and there's no sign that there's any that I ever had cardiac arrest, which was Great. like really shocking for them. Yeah. No, the 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 Ibogaine side effects are temporary. Um, it, it's not like permanent. Damage, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I, I think that for anybody who hasn't actually experienced what you've experienced, um, you do give a sense of the uh, almost miraculous uh, feeling that comes with the other side of treatment. Where you, in your case, in your case, and not every case do people feel completely comfortable, no. but you certainly did, and um, it's it's a real re- reclamation of your own life, right? Yeah. And it was like, this is a big, important part of my story and of like the work that I do now is that I saw that all of the destruction and craziness I had been through and caused was actually really crucial, important training for me to do the work that I'm doing now. And I'm so grateful for it. And I'm not ashamed of it. And I talk really openly about going to jail and about all of it because it helps reduce the stigma for other people. And it helps people, other people to feel empowered about what they've been through. Cause there's so much shame that is imposed on drug users. They need to be ashamed that they relapse and they need to be ashamed. They've been to jail and like, there's just all this heaviness and you have to say that you're powerless and you have this disease. And it was like, Nope, that's actually not true. And it's really stagnating for people to societies and people's families put all this heaviness onto them, you know, and it's just not the case. And also I saw through that process that like all of the pressure that was being put on me because of my issue with drugs was not fair because it's not just the problem of the individual. It's the problem of society and the way our society is constructed. And then the family, 
likes to pray, place all the blame on the one singular person when it's an issue of the of the family unit. And Absolutely, it, and it takes, yes. Absolutely. And it takes a community effort to heal somebody. And when you make someone feel like it's only their responsibility, it's it's just, that's crushing. And that's what leads people to relapse and die. Because yeah, well, that responsibility isn't all of theirs. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there's such, such ignorance about the dynamics that take place in families where you have one individual who carries the burden and often can be the abused one, uh, whereas everybody else appears to be functioning normally and they're actually play, you know, play important actors in that individual's abuse. So, uh, we yes. can, you know, we really can't afford to judge and certainly not on flippant conversation, uh, which is why, you know, gossip can be such a, 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 a terrible thing. Um, but, you know, your experience, you know, I'm, it, it, it thrills me, actually, the, when somebody like yourself can, can see the positive, uh, the positivity in their past and, and bring it to the present, because that is the key, in my opinion, to, you know, a successful um, life and, 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 you know, getting, if you like, get, for all of us to get through all the things that life throws at us. So congratulations that you have arrived where you are at. And that means that you, you know, obviously you have a lot you can say about safety and chemical standards, because, as you know, most of the community is not regulated, apart from New Zealand, Brazil and South Africa, are the only countries, as you told me, yourself where uh, Ibogaine is licensed. So um, Gita brought out these guidelines and um, they said, you know, apparently are great guidelines, but there's an, is there any uptake in the community and what's the, what's, what should we be doing about it? That's the tricky thing is there's no way to enforce, they're great clinical standards, but there's no way to enforce them. It's like optional. Um, there's no like governing body. There's no like inspectors that are going to inspect and certify clinics. Um, anybody who has like a couple grand really can go to Mexico and open a clinic and claim that they're the world's foremost expert or whatever, you know? Um, so really for clinics to follow these protocols, it's of their own accord, unfortunately. And many of them aren't, or many clinics are saying they do follow the protocols and then they actually don't. And they cut a lot of corners because it's expensive or they can't find a doctor or they're having a hard time finding the proper stabilization meds. I mean, I've heard of really people that I'm friends with who I respect a lot, not being able to find morphine or oxycodone to stabilize people and using tar, street bought tar heroin to stabilize people which is extremely dangerous. Right. Um, and so this corner cutting thing, um, it happens because setting up an ibogaine treatment is complicated and it requires a lot of things to be in place. And so people just aren't able to do it. So then they're, they're kind of being dishonest on their website and really dishonest to themselves by saying that they are abiding by the clinical pro protocols and yeah. they're not. And it's probably worth mentioning at this point that you have your own uh, website, which is called exactly... Intervision I began. right, dot com. And in on that website, people who are interested in uh, going for treatment can get a package of uh, sessions with you where you help them through the process. But you also, interestingly, offer provider support. And I think that's something that really is necessary and important and completely lacking uh, for providers who, many of whom, uh, don't realize their own uh, lack of training in what they're doing. Yes. Yeah. Offering provider support is something that has been needed in this community for a long time. Um, four years ago in the Tepotsan conference, I did a panel about provider support 
and um, it kicked off a conversation about things we can do to support each other, but then nothing kind of really happened. So right now um, I'm working with a collective of women in the community, and one of the first projects we want to do is offer something offer a service to providers so that we can all be connected with each other and share information and share support, not just on safety protocols, but just emotional support. Because being an Ibogaine provider is like one of the most stressful, no, it's definitely the most stressful job I've ever done. There's a reason I'm not giving Ibogaine treatments now. And it's, it kind of consumes your whole life. Right. Um, you have to live there. You have to uh, deal with these these people who are coming in with really intense trauma and projected onto you, um, you you're in charge of people's lives, but you're also doing administrative stuff, but you're also dealing with these really emotional demanding families. And a lot of providers aren't even in therapy themselves, which I think needs to be a minimum requirement to be working that you have to be in therapy. Um, but we, we want to start offering something um, that, like a monthly meeting or an idea I have is to have like a, a message board that you log into to get support from other providers. Um, there, these things are in the works right now. They're not quite ready to be unveiled, but um, this is one of our first priorities mm -hmm. is getting this project up. Yeah, no, definitely. I think if there was uh, something that people could sign up to voluntarily where they, you know, abide by a set of um, rules or standards, a part of, of those being, you know, regular checkups on, 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 on sort of uh, auditing of their own um, sessions following certain guidelines, as well as checking in for provider uh, group meetings, if you like, that you know, if that was available and people looking for treatment could see, oh, yes, they they subscribe to that. Um, yes. You know, but it seems that Gita was going there but never got there with this process. Yeah, because the thing is, is a lot of people that open eye baking clinics kind of have this like mad scientist slash shaman complex where they right. think that they know everything and that they don't need some organization telling them what to do. Like a lot of people in Ibogaine are the types that are like, screw society, I don't want any part of it, I don't believe in authority, um, which there's nothing wrong with that. But then it kind of, there's a fine line between that and between just being like a reckless know-it-all who's not receptive right. to feedback and is right. not asking for help. And so there's a lot of people in the community who wouldn't care if Gita was doing a certification process. I think the way to promote a certification process is to get enough clinics that do want to do it and promote it widely on the internet so that when people are looking for clinics they're looking for the certification exactly exactly yes uh, there, you know because uh, you know there are we have what's called pop-up clinics and you even with the same name you can't be sure it's the same provider from a month ago he might have sold his little enterprise yeah. to someone else who is just he treated maybe in the you know last weekend uh, so i find that particularly scary um yeah you know, uh, and I used to, I, up until recently, I listed all clinics because I had no way of knowing which were good and bad. But frankly, I, I reached a point where I no longer can sort of live with that uh, thought of, you know, um, of uh, indiscriminate, uh, you know, treatments. It just just really doesn't sit with yeah, me as you well. Just, you don't know who you, what you're sending people no, to. I mean, often... Not. People, most of the time, I don't give specific clinic recommendations. Um, I, Shay Pruger, the Ibogaine provider, Shay Pruger, and I created 
a guide for finding a safe clinic. And it's a list of really detailed questions. And pretty much if you go through all these questions with whatever clinic you're calling, you're going to weed out the, I mean, it's not 100% fail safe, but you're going to weed out most of the unsafe people. And so often people ask me what clinic I should go to, I send them this guide. Um, Sometimes I do recommend a couple of clinics. I have like three or four clinics that I really stand by. But mm-hmm. um, it, I really only recommend the clinics if I'm super familiar with the person that I'm talking to who's looking for the clinic. Um, so this guide is a great way also for people to be empowered to direct their own Absolutely, treatment. Absolutely, yeah. Because Absolutely. oftentimes people, they just want to find the easiest, cheapest place to go to, and yeah. they don't care about the safety. I mean, when I was looking for a clinic, I didn't really care. I was like, who can take me first? And who do I like on the phone? You know, well, like I didn't understand the safety issue completely. Yeah. And that's that's often the common attitude. And so when you get people to use this guide, then they really start learning about what Ibogaine treatment is and yeah. they become more engaged in the process, which I think is important because people are too often looking for a quick fix and for someone else to do their work for them. And they think Ibogaine is going to magically fix them like it's a magic button. But really, you need to be super engaged in the process. Yes, but I think it, it would really be helpful if somebody was to sign up with someone like yourself uh, and you could take them through the process and be there on the other side. Um, you know, because I think people who are uh, going chemically dependent, uh, I mean, they're, they're, some are very functional, others are not so functional. Uh, it, you know, I can imagine it's a, an extremely vulnerable situation to be in and difficult to make the right choices. Yes. Yeah, it's really difficult. You know, sometimes people, when they call me and I think that they're wanting to do like preparation and integration sessions with me, really what people are looking for first are like guidance in like, where do I go? Like, what am I looking for? Like, what is this like? Um, Because people have no clue. Like they see these really sensationalist things on the internet that it's this like cure, which is so dangerous that people are still saying this um, because it's not a cure. Like it's, it's merely a door opener down a path where you have a lot of work to do afterwards. Um, And so a lot of times what I'm doing is just like educating people on the phone for the first session and with families too. That's the other thing is I often spend a lot of time talking to like distraught parents um, who have no idea what this is about. Right. Right. And so, I mean, if, if you were to set up a certification uh, program, how would you envisage that? Would there be an education component? Would there, because I'm imagining, for example, that uh, many providers who are coming from having been previously using, um, you know, uh, they may have they may have a whole big gap in their life where they've failed to form any kind of uh, functional relationships. Uh, they may also have, um, you know, uh, just under the surface uh, abuse that has happened that they're in denial and so on. Because I can tell you from my own experience with Ibogaine is that um, it took me 15 years before I was able to actually, you know, face head on the abuse that occurred to me as a child. So there, there's a mountain of issues, which, of course, taken in the right way can be opportunities for uh, to be even better than the normal person in providing the service. So how would you envisage the uh, the certification? The certification process? Mm-hmm. Um, the certification process that I would design would involve uh, a trauma-based, a trauma-informed education, how to work with people with trauma. 
Um, it would involve training on how to work with women in particular, because I would say like most of the providers that I know about are men who have serious like mental health issues who have been abusive to women in the past and who think that they're some kind of shamanic healer, but are actually doing really damage to the women that they're treating often. And most of the time, women who are coming into Ibogaine have met male specific trauma in their past. And so to go to a clinic and work on, you know, and have the guy treating you have the same abusive patterns that you've already experienced in your life, it's super re-traumatizing and it's super dangerous. And so there yeah. would need to be a, tr- the, a specific training for how to work with women specific uh, yeah, trauma. I'm just interested in that, actually, when you talk about that, you know, what kind of um, personalities are we talking about? I mean, I, as my, I don't really love DSM diagnoses. Like, I don't like to give, I don't think that giving mental health labels is really that helpful. I find it quite limiting. But okay. saying that, I do see a lot of men in the community who qualify under personality disorder diagnoses, especially borderline personality disorder, and also very sociopathic type tendencies. Um, I mean, Ibogaine treatment being that it's unregulated and that you're suddenly in control of people's well-being, um, it's, it's a perfect storm for sociopaths and personality disorders to come in and kind of do whatever they want without anybody watching um, and charge whatever they want and claim whatever they want and feel like they've got some magical power over people and they're, they're healing people. And, um, it's really, yeah, it's the perfect storm. Um, so the you, community. You, do you feel that that's a, a, a serious problem in the community or it's just, yeah. it's, it's, a... no, I see this over and over again with, hmm. with male providers, um, and others who work in the community who are doing abusive things with women, everything from like just outright rape all the way to like emotional abuse, all the way to how men in the community treat women in the community um, mm. who work in the community as well. Like there's, there's, it's not just like abuse from provider to client. It's also between the members who work in the community as well. And it's not just men. There are women in the community who have been known to do psychologically abusive things as well. Like I'm not just going to say it's only men, but there's definitely incidents of this like very egotistical um, shamanic personality who comes in and thinks that they just have a magical, um, formula. I mean, even Lex who treated me, um, you know, he was operating very dangerously. He had, a. I do want to say he had a really big heart and he, he did generally care about people, but he had a dangerous thing where he thought that he had some kind of God given magical formula. And like, he even told me later that he didn't weigh my dose out while he was giving it to me because he thought that he could tell by the way it felt or that the way it looked, how much to give me. And in the end, he gave me, he totaled up, like he, he looked at what was missing from his supply. So that's how we knew what I had gotten, but it was over 40 milligrams per kilo, which is way more than anybody should ever take. Of course I ended up in the hospital. And so there's this kind of thing that happens where um, it seems to be mostly men who think that they have come up with some kind of magical formula and they have some kind of power and, Often these men um, give the impression to others that they're very together and very calm and very responsible and they're so good at doing all these things. Um, but there's something going on and underneath that they hide very well. Um, and some, some of them don't hide it well. Some of them it's really clear that they're unstable people that should not be in charge of people. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, there was a time in my life when I used to think that 
Ibogaine was not really meant to be in a medical setting, but there's a lot to be said for it because of the order and uh, the boundaries that the professional approach brings. Because I think in any walk of life, you have different kinds of personalities, um, not just in the, you know in the Ibogaine community. You have it in the in the you know in the medical world as well, and some aren't particularly nice at all. But what safeguards the client are are the professional rules and regulations that they have to abide by. And I think something similar is needed in the Ibogaine community. Yeah, and, and what, exactly. And what I wanted to mention before about a certification process is every person in the certification process would need to be in therapy. Right. And also anyone who had just gotten off of their own drug issue in the last year is not qualified to run a clinic. I'm sorry. Like you are not going to be able to do the work on yourself in that short amount of time to be equipped to open a clinic. I remember the guy who opened up when he first posted his website, it was like he had just gotten off of his drug habit a month before opening the clinic. Nice. And like, that is not going to be safe. Um, no. So anyone, anyone going through a certification process needs to be in therapy, needs to be doing some kind of group work. And I would love Absolutely. it if there was a structure that would be for provider specific, I began provider specific therapy right. done by people who have worked right. in the community and understand the stressors. Like I, that's something I would love to provide eventually um, for people. So uh, yeah, it wouldn't just be about education and training because anybody can check all the boxes and say that they've read and listened and understand, but it's about ensuring that those giving the treatment are doing work on themselves and are being honest. Um, right. And I think that this would need to be like they would need to be under like a supervision, just like any psychologist in the U.S. is under a supervision process with another Absolutely. psychologist. Absolutely. This is what needs to be in place for ibogaine providers as well. Yeah, and, um, uh, yeah, and I think what we need to realize is that, uh, you know, for many people after they've been treated, they still have to deal with the, you know, abuse in their childhood. They may have been raped. They may have been, uh, God knows how they were abused. And these abuses, if you like, early life abuses, leaves a deep-seated shame and disrespect for oneself. You know, the, to my mind, the, the path or the ultimate goal of healing is self-love, and they're far from that. So the, the, the sort of the... Easy, it's easy then coming out of that kind of background to adopt or adapt personality uh, behaviours which are compensatory and which will only go away through further, uh, deeper work, which I believe the initial Ibogaine experience is showing that we need to do if we look carefully enough. It isn't a magic bullet, as you said. So, um, you know, what you're talking about is so right. And at the same time, you know, the community uh, is um, um, is offering something that if it weren't there, it's quite likely more people would die. Would you agree with that statement? Um, if the Ibogaine community wasn't here, more people would die. Yes. Um, yeah, potentially. I, um, yeah, I think so. Mm. It's It's tricky because... It's that's saying that like I began always works and it doesn't, you mm -hmm. know, like a lot of people do. My story actually is the minority. Like oftentimes people do I begin and they do relapse afterwards, but that doesn't erase the progress and the work that I begin that they did with I begin, you know, and right. that's another really common misconception is that relapse means that you're back to square one, which I do not agree with at all. Um, sometimes people 
you know, do I begin uh, eight years later, they're still relapsing, but there's still some, something that happens during that process that pushed them further in their um, internal healing journey. And then eventually they stop and maybe it's not with Ibogaine, maybe it's something else. Um, So Ibogaine plays a different role for everybody. Um, So, yes. So, uh, I mean, it's part of the harm reduction uh, approach, you know, that people have that option. And at the moment, it's not satisfactory, uh, the way in which it's exercised, but it continues to be an option. Uh, rather than no, not not being an option, uh, and that's where the you know that's where one sort of crisis of conscience, if you like, comes in 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 even you know recommending or even suggesting clinics to anybody because of all the issues that you're raising. And I think you know you raise very important points about um, if you like the the. the the, the gap in perhaps the development of the individual now giving treatments. Um, yes. You know, so that's where if we had more professional uh, guidance, it would be better for everybody, wouldn't it not? Would it? Yeah, definitely. Like, I would love to see, um, I would love to gather like a group of psychologists and therapists to kind of design a program in the Ibogaine community for providers to be a part of. Um, I think that, you know, just having a license isn't the only measure of experience and and of knowledge. I mean, some of the most experienced, um, talented people in the Ibogaine community have no degrees or licensure. But I do think that we need mental health um, trained professionals to to provide some kind of a structure for people working in the community. Um, Even the people that are like the most talented Ibogaine providers struggle themselves still. And so I think there needs to be more of a resource, uh, more of a solid, well-structured resource for people working in the community. Yes, and I I know that Claire Wilkins is also interested in in that. I, I just hope that something can get off the ground. Uh, I know you mentioned to me there were two nurses some years ago uh, who would uh, who offered to visit clinics, is that right? Iboga Safe? Yeah, Iboga Safe. They, and that wasn't for, that wasn't like mental health related. That was like safety training for clinics, mm. which was very needed. Like the service that they designed and offered was amazing. But what ended up happening is the clinics didn't want to pay for it, frankly. Like they didn't want to pay to fly the nurses there and give the training, even though they needed it because they wanted to save the money. And they just thought, we'll figure, you know, we have the GITA guidelines. We'll figure it out for ourselves. Well, that so, says it all. That yeah, and that's all. kind of, that's what happens in this community. And so they, they just, they had one clinic booked um, to give a training and then somebody else, actually another provider in the community kind of undercut them and went and trained the clinic for cheaper. And so they just kind of gave up because, you know, when it comes down to it, a lot of these providers are really focused on the money. And I hate to say that. And that's not everybody, of course. But a lot of the clinics are more worried about profit than they are about doing things right. Um, There's a clinic in Tijuana right now who, like, sends people from the clinic to go hang out outside of methadone clinics and rehab centers and, like, poach people for Ibogaine treatment. Um, You know, and it's... It's really, it's really like it's, car, car yeah, it's, salesman-y. It, yeah, it's getting to be seedy. Um, really seedy. Yeah. And really risky because a lot, a lot of people 
in order to like really understand if somebody is safe to do ibogaine it's you can't really assess it overnight like you need to be in communication with them for a while and going through their medical tests and really seeing like that they're um, ready to show up and really do the work i mean my favorite providers in the community sometimes talk with people for months um, nice. before they come for treatment so that they really understand where the person is at and they really know how to work with this person properly. And by the way, this is another thing. Those are women providers. The, the, the people I know who work the most thoroughly and most carefully in the community are women providers. Nice. Just going right. to say that. No, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, you know, uh, not to stereotype, but uh, women do often show more, uh, you know, of the um, caring uh, attributes uh, than men. Uh, and le are less sort of driven by uh, logic or the purely, you know, rational. Um, so, yes. There's just, so a mul there's just like a multi-dimensional way yes. that I see women able to view things. Yes. Um, where they're able to look at things on an emotional sense, right. on a medical sense. Um, they're able to deprioritize the money, often to a fault. That's the other issue is right. the women providers I know often aren't charging enough and being compensated for their time properly um, yes. because they're super compassionate and they're really trying to help people. Um, so they put the profit thing in the back seat, And often they're the most overworked providers too because of this. Like I've got a friend who, you know, has some clients she's been talking to for two years who've never paid her anything. And so that's another problem is all these women in the community are doing tons of free labor when the men in the community are like, my fee is $50 an hour for a consultation or whatever, you know? And um, right. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it's like, why are the men in the community making the most money, but the women are doing more of the good, safe work and not getting paid for it? And this is a problem. Yes, you mentioned that, uh, you know, men are more represented in the community and their voices are more often uh, better heard. Um, but it does seem that the Ibogaine community is made up predominantly of men. Is that not correct? Yeah, it's true. Uh, or there there are a good number of women. They just don't get featured hmm. um, because they don't have this same like like a they, this thing where they want to be the authority, where they want to be the spokesperson, where they want to be the executive directors. They want to be like the authority. Right. I'm a doctor and I'm the authority. There's just this there's an ego thing that happens. And I'm not saying women are exempt from it, but it's more common with men. And this yeah. isn't just the Ibogaine community. This is the psychedelic community. This is the world oh, community. It's, 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 it's everywhere. You know, yeah. I, I remember when I was a child, I used to be in the play yard looking at kids beating one another, one another up and behaving totally nastily. And I used to think it's amazing how, you know, when you get older, people are all so well behaved. You know, you'd see all these adults walking up and down the town um, being polite to one another. But then when you get older and you see the kind of uh, crap that people pull, you begin to realize that actually they're still children. They're just pretending they're not. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's even worse in organizations. Every organization I've tried to join or take a part in, there's been at least one person who's took a knife out to stab me. So, uh, um, you know, these are organizations like, like Greenpeace and others. And I just, uh, I, you know, it, there really is a dominance of ego in a lot of these so-called um, altruistic organizations. Yeah, and I, and I think that it comes from, uh, you know, people... I think that overall it's harder for men to be honest and admit where they have shortcomings and admit where they're vulnerable and admit where there's mistakes because yeah. the way society raises men 
to um, be the strong one, and they're not allowed to show emotions, and they're not, and it's bad to show weaknesses. And even in the in the men I know who are the most um, like you could say awakened, even though I don't really like that word, like men that are doing work on themselves, even in those men, there is still this ingrained patriarchy where uh, they, they think that they're the holder of some kind of truth or they think that um, they're so strong. And so there's just this, they haven't been trained to be vulnerable and be able to have self-awareness to admit where there's something missing and admit there's something wrong. And women are just naturally better at that. Nice, um, nice. to say like, Oh, you know what? I screwed up or like ask for help. Um, nice. and I think when you have women working together, this strengthens even more to where women are more inclined to be able to work in community with each other, where the men are more likely to kind of compete with each other for the yes. most part. Yes, um, and so I really think in Ibogaine, a women, woman led community would be a better and safer community. Um, yeah. and that's why we formed this collective recently because we want to work on some things that have never taken off because it's not the priority for the men working in the community. Right. The men in the community want their names on papers. They want their names um, on organizations. They want their names um, in articles and on panels. And um, women are actually the ones doing the real work behind the scenes and they're not getting on panels and they're not organizations because they're actually working with people. They're doing the actual Ibogaine work with people. But are they not um, being asked or they simply don't want to be a part of the panels? I know they, I mean, they, they are being asked sometimes. I mean, it mm. depends what you're talking about. Like there's, there's some organizations that are better at others about representing women. I'm not going to say it's across the board that women aren't represented, but I think like, for example, there was this virtual psychedelic conference in April and yes. the panel um, was all men. And so I got in touch with the organizers and I was like, this is a big problem. You can't do this. We have a lot of talented women in the community um, and you need to, you need to get one of us on there. Um, so I think that the men are often the ones that are putting together these conferences. And so they're looking for men and then the, the like men in the community already have their names out there so much that they're the first ones that come up in the search. And so I think it's exactly. really, the job of the organizers of conferences and events to actively seek women. Yes. They need to they need to put a little put in a little extra work looking up women in the community and not just women but also other underrepresented groups, people of color. Um, and that's a whole other issue is that the Ibogaine community is mostly white, and that's that needs yes. to get talked about. And that we need to come up with a way to make Ibogaine accessible for people in, of color of and, all communities. Um, of all communities. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, when we talked before, you actually came up with a lot of really good ideas, which, you know, if there was to be a certification board, uh, you might have. You mentioned things like having a um, provider support, having a hotline uh, fund to help providers who've relapsed. Um, you mentioned uh, provider evaluations, uh, cert you know, training uh, process. Uh, and, you know, various other things which we've talked about here. So it seems to me that, you know, genuine providers, if they were to sign up to this, they would have to make a contribution and it wouldn't be a small contribution because, you know, they have a fund for providers who, if, you know, hit the rocks for whatever reason or feel they have to stop treating because they feel they're not competent. Um, that could, that's going to cost money. And it strikes me if, if, the, if the community doesn't want to fund that kind of network or support, then their motives aren't altogether uh, honest motives. 
Yeah, well, that's the that's issue is there's a lot of people who are not functioning with honest motives in the community, and they don't even see it themselves. They, they represent themselves as functioning with pure motives, and they're not. That's There's just like a really high level of delusion, and so that's what makes the treatment community so dangerous. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, it's tricky. Like, so far, none of these, like, certification processes or funds have worked is because people just simply don't care. Like, they're worrying about making their money. Um, but I, what I'm hoping is if we get enough clinics who do care, who do want to be a part of a certification process, who do want to contribute to a fund, yes. that we can promote it and make and, it enough and, and get the partnership of other organizations in the psychedelic community right. to promote exactly. it as well. So if there are providers listening to this podcast, they could contact you if they're interested and you could maybe start collecting names. Yeah, that would be definitely happy to do that. Great, that sounds like great. I just want to actually just touch on one minute uh, on, a, on the issue of abuse in treatment and to speak a little about my own experience where I had been, uh, in my li daily life, I'd been subjected to a lot of trauma uh, to because of events that were taking place at home. My mother was very, very sick at the time and quite needy and uh, oblivious to the trauma I'd been through. So I was actually trying to self-treat uh, myself with... Um, Psych psychedelics to release the trauma. I didn't realize how much trauma I had. It was so bloody painful that the people around me were disturbed by the sounds I was making. But um, I think there was some uh, an element of um, you know bad intention uh, from somebody's part because they tried to insinuate that the noises I was making were something other than. Uh, what they were and and that really struck me that really hurt me i was so so very very hurt by that uh, mm. so ignorance the ignorance and yeah. it took me ye years of painful uh, you know facing things with myself to deal with the shame because actually it, it, in the end it worked out well for me because it all brought me to the point where i faced my own um, violation as a child uh, and and that, so that had really eaten into the whole question of shame and so on and so forth. So I think mm -hmm. everything has a positive ending in some ways. But uh, what my point I want to make is that lack of training in providers can mm -hmm. create a, a, a psychological... re-traumatization. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, so we do need, um, we do need uh, guidelines. We need, definitely need boundaries in treatment. Um, yes. And I also think that every clinic needs to have on staff um, a mental health professional, not, if not two, um, to always be present for people. Um, the first clinic I trained out in South Africa had no mental health professional that was present. I think a psychologist would come for an hour every week to see six people um, or something like that, you know. And I was there training, and so all of the guys, it was mostly men that got treated there, um, all of the guys just wanted to talk to me. Like they were just wigging out, you know, they were getting off of heroin and doing Ibogaine. And I was really the only person there for them to talk to. And, um, it was really, it was really intense and clearly they needed more support than I could give. And, um, there needs to be someone present at all times. Cause this is like, a really delicate situation. Yes, you're yes, taking people yeah. with complex trauma and you're giving them one of the most intense psychedelics in the world. Yeah. You, you need to have mental health professionals on staff who are there to support. Yes. I mean, I, you know, in the early days I was involved in treatments and um, I have to admit that I, you know, 
I learned a lot and I wasn't really um, as trained as I could have been in the long run. Um, you know, so we don't know what we don't know, really. Uh, that's the problem uh, with people coming from, no, you know, having no training whatsoever. Um, the other thing I want to mention was that the Bwiti, you know, is, is a patriarchal, it is a patriarchal uh, mm -hmm. society, and I think that obviously it, it spills over into the Western adoption 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 of the of the Bwiti, if you like, iboga um, uh, ceremony. Yes, yeah, I mean that's definitely a part of the tradition. Um, I think that. Yeah, the Buiti element is often kind of what makes the already problematic men in the Ibogin community a little bit more problematic because then they get all amped up. Not always, but I, there's some kind of like egotistical power thing that happens. And this is because it's white men from the West who don't fully understand Buiti, yeah. you know? Uh, if so. they had, maybe if they had been trained for years in Gabon, it wouldn't get turned into this weird like, power dominance thing yeah i mean i can i think part of the problem is that uh, the 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 boga spirit can give the person a strong sense of the spiritual presence and, and connection and you couple that with a a, a weak ego or a, you know a, a, a sort of complex of low of inferiority or or low self-esteem and you have the makings of uh, delusion yeah, pretty much. Unfortunately. Yeah. The other thing is there are women and gangas in Gabon. You know, it, it is a male-dominated practice, but there are really amazing women and gangas. And I, when I went to Gabon two years ago, I witnessed the ceremony with a woman in ganga. So um, it's the way that they understand the roles of, of masculine and feminine Gabon is very different than we understand them in the West. And I don't think it's possible for us with a Western perspective to just look at it get a glimpse of Bwiti and really understand what the roles mean. I mean, even me going there, I know I don't fully understand either. Right. Um, and that's the problem with taking these indigenous traditions and bringing them to the West um, is that you're taking them totally out of context and you're taking them like people who grow up in a village in Gabon are not going to understand mental health and issues the same way we do because it's completely different planets essentially. Um, and, and that's why, Iboga works very differently on people in Gabon than it does on people from the West. So, um, although I think it's beautiful to carry the tradition with Iboga to the West, I, there's also problems latent in that as well. Right. Yes. I mean, I have, you know, mixed uh, thoughts on that. I, I think at the end of the day, the principal thing is that um, you're ingesting the iboga and you have a relationship with the spirit of the plant. But in any case, um, something you mentioned to me before was that many providers, and I've, I've had a, my own uh, sort of gripes about this, uh, are making promises that are just simply not realistic or uh, fair mm -hmm. and creating an expectation, level of expectation yes. that is, is unrealistic and almost um, commercial, uh, like snake oil. And, yeah. uh, you know, you know, I, I was speaking with Tatayo from Gabon and we were about the very same thing. Uh, you know, it took me 15 years before I finally connected with the, the events that occurred to me as a child. And after having numerous uh, intensely colorful uh, iboga experiences, um, you know, so just taking the iboga is not going to um, solve the problem. No, 
that's the thing. And that's why I'm do, doing this work, this preparation and integration work, because there has always been too much emphasis on the Ibogaine. And people think that it's like a magical button that you push and all of your disruptive patterns will be gone. Or, you know, there's people still calling it a cure, um, which you set an expectation like that up and it doesn't happen. People are going to relapse and OD and die. People are going to get depressed and disenchanted. I've heard many people say, I begin, didn't work for me. It works for everybody else. I'm hopeless. You know, I'm, I'm a hopeless case. There's nothing I can do. And it really sets people up for failure. Um, and so, uh, it's important that, and a lot of these sites are very salesman-y, you know, where it's like, it's going to change your life, guaranteed success, um, you know, money back guarantees and all this crap. Um, it's really, you need to, one thing I impress upon people when they inquire about Ibogaine treatment is that it's going to uncover a lot of really hard work and Mm. then it's going to be your job to do that work. You know, um, and even what happened for me is kind of a rarity and, um, it's, it's just, it's only, it's only the beginning of a long process. You're not going to be able to do undo 30 years of disruptive patterns in one night. It's just not going to happen. Um, you might be able to reset the, the brain chemistry and that gives you a huge advantage because that's one of the main problems of mainstream addiction treatment is they take drugs away from people and expect them to do well when there's like huge neurochemical imbalances. And that's the advantage Ibogaine has is it sets up your dopamine and serotonin hmm. um, really well, like, like nothing else can. And so that's great, but that doesn't mean you're not gonna have work to do. And often people who do feel amazing after Ibogaine two or three months later get really depressed and they feel really disenchanted, but that's normal because mm-hmm. you're uncovering all this stuff that has been covered up for however many years, you know, 20 years of doing heroin and you take the heroin away, even if Ibogaine helps at first, there's a certain point where the underlying mental health issues are gonna make themselves apparent. And that's why it's important to be working with someone that you can talk to about this, that you can um, unpack it with, that somebody that can help you come up with daily practices um, to maintain this. And honestly, a lot of what I do in the preparation integration work is just helping people to set up their day in a a healthy way and get motivated and to um, let, and a lot of people get this idea that they need to be working hard all the time. And like, Oh, they're just like, they, they missed, they didn't journal today and they feel bad about that. And it's like the hardest thing for people to do who had a drug issue is learn that the most important thing they need to learn is to, uh, how to have fun because mm-hmm. our society doesn't prioritize joy and fun. They think it, they teach us that it's all about hard work and making progress. Um, and so I really, spend a lot of time kind of coaching people to make time to do something that's just fun and enjoyable, right. you know, and that's like a foreign concept to people because fun and enjoyable was using a substance. And so now that you don't have that anymore, it's like, well, what gives you fun and joy that isn't drugs? Um, and that's very therapeutic for people when they finally find like, oh my God, I just love doing this thing. And it might not be like productive by society standards, but it feels really good. And I think that that is gets left out of uh, mainstream drug treatment and even Ibogaine treatment too. There's too much focus on the hard work too. Yes, I mean, one of the things, I mean, 
there are obviously some areas in which it, it can help that, uh, you know, in the area of PTSD, for example, uh, and there are certain things where Ibogaine has potential, but I don't think the uh, great swath of, um, you know, uh, items that it's purportedly uh, deals with are credible. I just don't think it's credible because... Yeah, there is definitely you know, an over, you know, like hepatitis C and now some people are saying COVID, it cures COVID and all these things. Like mm. there's people that will find a way that like Ibogaine fixes everything, which isn't realistic. Mm. Um, and it really works on everybody totally differently. Like I've helped treat someone with chronic manic depression who their depression is gone and like hasn't really come back in the same way that it was there before. But then there's other people who it didn't even touch their depression at all. And so it, you really don't know how I begin is going to affect a person. And so the best way as a provider to approach the treatment is to sit down and say, okay, so what do you want out of the treatment? Don't tell them what they're going to get out of it. Cause you don't know. You got to sit down with the person and say, what do you want to get out of it? Okay. So let's make a plan so that we can try to get that thing that you want out of it. Right. Um, yes. and, and, then, and then it's in the control of the person. And then they start to learn that, oh, it's up to me to decide and me to take the action. Because that's the other thing is a lot of people, and this includes myself, don't know how to do work. They don't know what doing work means to get something. Um, right. that, like our society has taught us that like, if you pay enough money or if you ingest the right substance or like, you know, that's the work's going to get done for you. Like people don't actually know what doing work on yourself means. Um, they think that like, oh, these negative mental health patterns I have, they're just here and I'm stuck with them. And that's part of the problem with labeling um, addiction as a disease and mental illness as a permanent illness is people just think they're stuck. I'm just, I have, I have depression. This is how I am. Or I'm an addict. This is how I am. And that's not true. It's like, you can actually work to change these things and you can actually take action to change them. And people don't realize that. Yes. And we'll, and actually we'll come on to something a little about, about that a little later. And I was, I'm just thinking for some people who go to treatment have never uh, done any personal work. They don't even know what the word means. Uh, yeah. So it's a bit of a shock to sort of go through this experience, maybe see certain things about yourself and perhaps have an idea that you need to do something or not. Uh, you know, so the whole thing of preparation and integration, this is where you come in. I mean, you know, how do you advise someone who's wouldn't know what the word uh, psychotherapy means? Yeah, <laughs> that's a tricky one. Um, I, I was working with somebody uh, from South Africa recently who was like this, who really didn't understand what therapy meant or like really didn't understand that it's essential to look at your trauma or really didn't understand what trauma was and kind of had this mentality about toughing it out. And, you know, at one point she told me, I don't need to talk anymore. It's just time for taking action. And like, meanwhile, we hadn't really talked about anything she had been through in her life. Um, there's some people, they just have not been raised in families that talk about emotions at all. And so it's really tricky to work with those people. And the first thing that you got to do is just keep asking, well, like, so what does that feel like, you know, and really getting them to talk about what that feels like, um, without them, without them saying like, Oh, but that's okay. I, I'm not worried about that anymore. Cause that's another thing people like to do is if, if they, if they do talk about something that's challenging to say like, well, but I'm, but I'm working on, I'm, that's not bothering me anymore. Right. It's like letting people know it's okay 
that it hurts. It's okay that you're still angry. It's okay that you're still sad. And to let people know that that's actually really brave and courageous to sit there and feel your emotions. It's the most courageous thing you can do is to sit there and feel your emotions yes. and be present with them. And so a, a lot of what I do is just really encouraging people to be with how they're feeling and letting them know that that's, that's good and that that's a success. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the other thing that I find that I do most often with anyone I work with is that letting people know that they're doing a really good job working on themselves because people, drug users especially, are so hard and they're such perfectionists that every day they're like, yeah, well, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. And I'm like, yeah, well, you did do this thing. You, you did journal and you did go to this um, like online group, therapeutic group. And that is a huge victory and not easy to do at all. And people are like, really? I don't even think that's that big of a deal. And I'm like, and I have to really insist, like, no, that's you working hard. And even if you just do one little thing, that's a huge success. And people aren't used to hearing this. They're used to being like put down by their families. They're used to being told by society that they're not doing enough. Like people have really internalized these voices of punishment. And so a lot of what I have to do is um, getting people to recognize how they are successful. And one of the things I do have everyone do is every morning um, people write down five things that they're grateful for to themselves, not in general, but what they're grateful to themselves for. Like, I'm grateful that I am going to therapy. I'm grateful to myself uh, because I went swimming in the ocean and it felt good and I did that for me. And when people start focusing their attention on the ways that they are doing well and are successful, um, they, they realize, hey, actually, I am making progress. You know, and often this perception that people have that they're not doing well is just because they're focusing on the negative aspects. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's self-love, uh, you know, it, it, it's the goal and uh, the lack of it, it, it leads to self-criticism, does it not? Um, uh, yeah. To what extent does the socio-cultural context impact uh, the, the client and the relationship with the provider? Well, this is like what I was kind of mentioning before is Western society is all about like success and it's all about recognition and achievement and career. Um, and so people really view themselves through the lens of society and like measure them, measure their value based on their like success in society. Um, and then providers carry that over too. like, there's a lot of providers that work from this like 12 step disease model viewpoint where um, you have, where they're pushing like abstinence only, which is a huge problem because that's not everybody's definition of success. It's not the right thing for everybody. Um, and so when you have someone coming for treatment that's still adhering to society's measure of success and you have a provider that's also still adhering to society's nice. measure of success, then you're just reinforcing the same um, colonizing patriarchal hierarchical system of understanding human beings. Right. Um, and it's like, and that's the reason why people are suffering so immensely in our society is because we have a very narrow definition of success and people often suck up a lot of pain and endure a lot of abuse just so that they can appear successful in society. And if we really want to address healing and address trauma, we have to, um, really look at, what are our definitions of success and doing well and reevaluate that. And I would, I would never send someone to a provider that's advocating only for abstinence. Nice. I, I like pushing that onto people. I think that's incredibly dangerous and using language like clean and dirty, which I think is so stigmatizing and so abusive. 
um, as if humans can be dirty, you know, yes. um, saying that people are addicts forever. I, I mean, if, if a provider uses the word addict, I will absolutely never send anybody there. Um, it is incredibly othering and stigmatizing and degrading. It's, it's the equivalent of a racist term for a drug user is addict. Right. Um, and if, if we're still using these overly simplistic black and white models of understanding what substance use is, then you're not really supporting people in who they are. Yeah, I, I think we are definitely, uh, we suffer from mental colonization. Um, yeah. where we've been handed all these terms and perspectives from the uh, institutions that you know govern society uh, and w because we don't trust in our own selves we we don't question them we're we're drowning in, in with them and and what you said about you know the 12-step program and all of that it's all great if it works for you fine but i am of yeah the opinion i mean because it does it yeah. does work for people and that's great there is some nice elements to it I'm not going to deny no, that. No, but what I'm going to say is that for me, I think we should all be open to the possibility that we can be 100% free and healed and not yes. set limitations. Uh, you right. Know, if you want to get to the moon, aim for the stars. I, I just, um, I agree with you wholeheartedly in, in what you're saying. It's always been um, a guiding light in my own ever since I was a child that I wouldn't listen to the people saying well you know you're abused or whatever and therefore you can't do this that or the other you should do this and the other you know I never bought into that uh, thank god um, but yeah, it just it just actually regarding the first three months after treatment there's a lot of mental uh, elasticity and the brain is open to changing patterns and in what way do you work with that well, that's why it's really great to do sessions with somebody right after your treatment um, is because you have this openness that you wouldn't have otherwise had um, without doing Ibogaine. Um, so, I mean, usually I went through a million detoxes without Ibogaine and there was a time I even lasted six months without drugs after a detox, but I still felt completely paralyzed by depression and anxiety. And so the great thing with Ibogaine is that doesn't happen. Like you feel... Most of the time, people feel really inspired and excited, excited about life um, right after getting off of hard drugs, which is, doesn't happen with anything else. Um, so when you're working with somebody um, doing integration work and they have this openness, it really gives an opportunity to come up with like a new way to structure their daily lives and um, a, a way to be open to new things. Like um, often people start trying out things that they've always wanted to do, but uh, never had the courage to, like going to some kind of acting class or, um, you know, going to some kind of group. People with social anxiety are terrified to go to anything that involves social aspects. And I see a lot of people who are more willing to do these things after I begin um, because they have this openness. Um, and then also people kind of have an ability to, there's like a, there's like a barrier that gets taken down with Ibogaine and emotions seem to flow out more readily, mm. which is good, but can also be really overwhelming for people. And so the integration is important to like help people contain the emotional flow and feel safe in it. Um, cause if you send somebody home and all these emotions are coming up and they go home to the same abusive family who doesn't talk about their feelings, then you're just feeling even more isolated and alone because you're crying all the time and there's no one to talk to about it. And so working with somebody afterwards is important so that 
the person can listen and understand, especially working with someone who's been through Ibogaine, they really can understand what's going on and really can listen to you um, and give, give supportive feedback. Yeah. Um, so, the, yeah. No, sorry, I was going to say you are... Um you're you're influenced by the uh, ideas of Andrew Tartarski, isn't that correct? Yeah, um, Dr. Me- Andrew Tartarski is like a, a harm reduction psychotherapist. He's not; it's not just his ideas. Um, like he's one of the people in the greater harm reduction community that has contributed to a harm reduction therapy discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he. I'm actually working at his center right now as the psychedelic program coordinator. Um, Great. Yeah. Which Fantastic. is a new thing, which is really exciting. Um, but yeah, his he's been an important part of um, helping me to understand these concepts of meeting people where they're at. Um, because I came from a background where I was told it was abstinence only, and you had a disease for life, and you have to say you're an addict forever, and there's no way you can do any substances, you're relapsing, it'll be a disaster. And even after I did Ibogaine, I still didn't know that that wasn't true. And it wasn't until I got introduced to the Ibogaine community, the psychedelic community, and the drug policy harm reduction community that I realized, oh, my God, I was being told lies that whole time. Like, there's all these other possibilities. Um, people, There's people that stop using heroin and uh, drink without a problem afterwards. There's people that, um, you know, do go out and party sometimes, but it doesn't ruin their life. Um, there's, it, it, It's really, like... People can be any number of different things after they've had um, a destructive relationship with a certain substance. And it doesn't mean that they have to just stop all substances altogether. You know, I think remaining a victim is not a spiritual approach. Uh, it would not be, in my mind, uh, uh, you know, something that I began uh, would be promoting, uh, the spirit of I began. So, um, you know, I think... The spiritual path's a, t- a difficult one. I mean, you know, those who have taken it have gone through uh, all kinds of uh, depressions and God knows what else, um, some of the great mystics. Um, so in a way we are, you know, repeating, we are taking similar paths in modern life uh, under different circumstances, uh, living in our own caves, wherever they may be. But um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned, um, yeah, you also you mentioned why I liked, why I brought up Andrew Tatarski was a couple of the points you mentioned to me about the non-judgmental approach being needed and how, you know, as you mentioned, meeting people where they're at. But you also mentioned that, uh, you know, traditional drug treatment in the U.S. is actually very traumatic. Um, yes. And it's, it's very stunting. Yeah, incredibly um, it's, it's very, it's very heavy. Um, there's all in, in traditional drug p- treatment in the U S it's like all of the focus is put on the individual. And even the 12 step program is all about like taking responsibility for what you've done. And it's like, yeah, it's important to be responsible for the things you've done, but there's also a whole society that you come from that has created a lot of these problems. Like 12 steps doesn't talk about systemic racism, um, 12 steps doesn't talk about patriarchy. Um, there's a lot of abuse that people go through that isn't their fault. And I, that doesn't mean that I think that everybody is just like a victim of everything. I think we, it's good to be responsible for the things we've done, but you have to, if you're approaching working on someone's healing, you have to look at the system that they're coming from. Um, so, I mean, when I was going through treatment, it just, it just felt incredibly 
heavy. Like it felt like there was this weight of work that only I could do. And that was only my fault. And that I was going to have to carry forever because I was going to need to say that I was an addict forever. Um, and even just the approach, it was, it was very uncompassionate. Like I have a friend who just went to a sober house and the men running this sober house were telling him things like, I bet you're not going to make it to 60 days clean. Yeah. And that was because he was doing things that were a little bit different from what they liked. Right. Um, and when, and when they, uh, he got in trouble for something at the house and they gave him this option to, uh, either go that he had to leave or go to another one of their houses. When he said he didn't want to stay anymore, they told him to get the fuck out. And that's supposed to be a healing environment. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was very military. Like it, like they literally sounded like military drill sergeants or police. Like yeah. it wasn't a supportive healing environment. And yeah, this like is really common. Yeah. And it's really common. This like hmm. this system of like punishing and degrading people um, and there needs to be mass education on how to work with people on trauma. Um, and there actually, there, there are some good rehab facilities, but they're few and far between. I really, nice. it's so hard for me to recommend traditional rehabs. I can maybe think of like two and they cost $40,000 a month in right. the U.S. because the way of our system is constructed. So, I, you know, what you say there makes me think that people going for treatment need to know if the provider has a personal agenda that they're going to drop on them when they arrive. Yeah, I think really the best way to weed out bad drug treatment in the U.S. is to make sure you're going to a place that is harm reduction based. Don't go to a place that's 12-step based. I really think that the way those places are constructed are um, super stigmatizing and oppressive. And I'm, I'm not saying that 12 steps is all bad. I think there's a lot of wonderful elements like the community element is super important. The service is really important. But I think if you go to a center that is basing their whole program on the 12 steps, it's more likely than not going to be like a really punishing, really narrow-minded, abstinence-only based treatment. And there are rehabs that are harm reduction based that are mm. more interested in supporting people and who they are truly as a person. Right, they're not just um, driven by the profit. By the profit, or just by like ideology. This real ideo this really narrow black and white ideology about mm. like you're sick for life. If you've had a problem with drugs, then you're diseased for life. I mean, this is. I think right. we're in fifty years. We're going to look back on this and think about how archaic this was. Yeah, it we sounds like almost, they almost want to uh, to witness people at their lowest point before they'll pick them up. And that, that's the whole narrative. Is you have to hit rock bottom. Exactly. And that's, so the, exactly. and that's not always how it works, this rock bottom thing. And it's really dangerous, you know? It's like, well, what if they overdose and died? Is that enough for you? Is that rock bottom? Like, are you glad that you uh, didn't let them into your house anymore and let them overdose and die? Like, it, you know, there's... Yeah. It's just really, it's really dangerous, this like tough love thing that the 12 steps promotes yeah. and yeah. Well, I think your role actually in a way, it reminds me of a term uh, we used to use in school of the guardian angel. You know, when you went to school first, you'd have your own guardian angel to take care of you. Uh, so you settled in and the way I think anybody going for treatment in the Ibogaine world should actually um, 
uh, come to you as a guardian angel and help to help them. I mean, when you speak about, uh, you know, uh, treatment in general in the U.S., you can see that there are systemic problems in those in that community as well. So, uh, you know, to be a bit, to, I, I, you know, not to sort of be too hard on the Ibogaine community as a whole, I think uh, there are some, as you, as you mentioned, really uh, great providers. Oh, definitely. Um, there are I, great providers. Yeah, there are. And their hearts are in the right place. And uh, overall, I think the community is doing something which is needed. Uh, it just, uh, it needs the support uh, that people like yourself and others of similar minds can give to to make it to create a, if you like a cocoon of safety that can grow and become the norm rather than uh, the exception um, yeah so there's just the one thing i want to mention is there's so much focus in the ibing community about getting it legal in different countries and making it available to as many people as possible but i think before that can happen we need to address the problems that are in the community now, because if we expand the community with the current problems that we have, then it's just going to get worse as as availability expands. And so I my priority is not getting it legal. It's not expanding it to as many people in the world. My priority personally is in improving the community we have now. And in right. order to do that, we, there needs to be more of a focus on self-reflection. Um, on mm -hmm. the individuals working in the community um, and the personal work that those who work in the community are doing. Um, and also the enforcement of the safety standards, because if we can't enforce safety standards now, then what's it going to be like when it gets expanded even further around the world? Um, mm. So I think this hyper focus on and getting it regulated on getting it uh, medicalized in, in Western countries, I don't think that that should be first on the agenda, honestly. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I think if we could just create this uh, in kernel of uh, reliability and, um, you know, safety, that would be a great um, starting point for expanding the community. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned when you spoke to me before about intersectionality, the, um, you know, the, over, the in, inter intersection of race, class and gender and uh, how it impacts um, the, the, you know, people coming for treatment or the treatments that are available to people. Do you want to mention something about that? Yeah. So in the Ibogaine treatment world, it's mainly been white people and it's mainly been white men coming for treatment. Um, women do come for treatment, but in my experience working, it was 80% white men coming. Um, and this is just because this is how first world countries are structured um, with who, who has money to be able to go for treatment, um, who feels entitled to speak up and say that they need help. Um, I think that something that's really important that should happen is that every clinic should offer sliding scale spots to people that are coming from underrepresented groups, people of color, um, non-gender conforming individuals, um, more women. Like there should be a set, like, you know, if you're a clinic that has a high volume, maybe one or two sliding scale spots a week that you charge enough for the other people um, so that there's like a fund ready to pay for the people in the sliding scale spots. I think every clinic should prioritize this um, because if we're only working to heal white men, then we're just perpetuating the, uh, the patriarchal system of oppression that people are traumatized by. Right. Um, so this is something that I think it also needs to be the next focus of the community is how can we get this treatment to people that are super traumatized 
by our society. Um, I mean, if you think white men are traumatized, think about black women, uh, right. black trans women, right. um, and how can we get treatment to them? Yes, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, um, so it, it's, um, it's been a really interesting conversation. I'm just wondering if there's anything we haven't touched on you'd like to talk about. Um, let me think here. Um, I really, let's see, I think it's important for me to mention that just because myself or other people have had treatments where it has worked and, you know, some of us have kind of become like these poster children for Ibogaine, I really don't like that this takes away from other people's experiences where Ibogaine didn't work for them. Mm. And I don't want my success to be discouraging for other people. Um, and everybody, everybody who goes through Ibogaine has their own unique path that they're going down. And I think this is powerful. And I, I want, I would love to see more articles written by people who've done Ibogaine who it didn't work for right away. Um, so often all of the media focus when I begin is on the people who it's been like miraculous and successful for, but I want to hear more of the voices that maybe it, they kept using for a while, or maybe, um, they went through some other really difficult things after I began. I, I think that this hyper focus on like the success of I began is, is problematic. And I kind of would like to start a blog that features different voices of people who've gone through Ibogaine so that we can hear more stories um, so that our, fo our focus isn't so narrow right. with how Ibogaine works. Yes, I mean, when you say it didn't work, uh, it, it would it not be fair to say that for most people it, it, it works when it comes to detoxification in that particular right. aspect? In that aspect, yes, but mm. I guess that's not the right term that it didn't work. I guess what I'm saying, is, thank you for pointing that out. I guess what I'm saying is it it works for detoxification, mm -hmm. but that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they went back to using for a while and that's okay. Right. And it's, if people relapse, that's okay. I, I really want to help dismantle this shame around relapsing and the shame around continuing to use drugs um, because it, it, it's every person's right to put whatever they want in their body for whatever reason. And if people need to continue taking a substance, it's because they're addressing something that hasn't been addressed properly yet. Um, and that's valuable too. That's a valuable story too. Just okay. because I left opioids behind doesn't mean that my story is more valuable than other people's. Right. Um, yeah, sorry. No, you go ahead. I was going to say that um, in terms of, you know, the session itself, I've noticed uh, that people, for example, who did a psycho-spiritual ceremony, they, you know, they're working uh, flat out uh, because they're running a business and then they they come straight to the session from their office and they are completely blank for 24 hours. Whereas those who have had a couple of days to uh, get ease into it and maybe, you know, um, whatever, take a swim or a bit of exercise, whatever, and just minds you know just if you like meditate a little bit if that's possible uh, they are much more successful in the outcome in my experience i just wanted to mention mm. yeah definitely i think the more time like doing these express three to four days treatments i mm. don't think is a good idea no i mean i begin is so intense 
I think in Buiti, they tell you that I think it takes, it was like three years after your initiation to really unpack all the lessons. It was something like that. Like it was multiple years. And so just thinking that you can go for four days to do Ibogaine and come back and be like, you know, magically feeling so much better is not really realistic. I think the more time that you can take before and after, the better. Um, Mm. Because there's really, there's really a lot to unpack and be present with um, before and after. Um, So I, I hope that clinics start to offer more time. I see a lot of clinics that like rush people through because they're trying to treat more people. Um, but I would love to see in the future more like post Ibogaine treatment places where people can go and just kind of like be with nature, maybe do some yoga, like be near the ocean. Um, so people can just be with themselves without feeling like the intensity and the urgency of first world society's needs right sitting on top of them yes Um, exactly Uh, and i I think you know from a uh, i guess from personal in a working perspective um and i I think it really helps if people have some experience of maybe whether it's group therapy or individual therapy where they can recognize the way in which they are projecting uh, on resolved trauma in their childhood into the circumstances of the present and actually, uh, you know, uh, deceiving themselves as to what is really going on because uh, that kind of insight and ability to uh, self-examine is really fundamental to uh, the recovery. Yes, yes, I think... It's better if people have been to therapy before, it Ibogaine's gonna work even better. It's it's much harder for people that haven't done self-reflective work to get Ibogaine because then it's a real shock mm. when suddenly all this trauma gets uh, gets uncovered. It's really shocking. Um, yeah. So the more self-reflection preparation, the better for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Juliana, it's been a, a fantastic conversation and one that was very much needed, I think. I hope that um, from this and, and uh, from your efforts that we are able to see something uh, come in, materialize soon where providers who are sympathetic to your perspective can jump on board because... Um, you know the way things are at the moment uh, i have a great deal of respect for providers um and i know the, the the challenges they have to deal with but you know being a realist also the reality of paying your bills and all the rest of it uh, in a non-regulated environment leads to mistakes uh, being made um so there has to be some form of regulation there has to be some form of uh, monitoring of what is going on and uh, and it'll only be for the benefit of the community in the long run. So I really hope, yeah. I wish you great success in your work. I do. Thank hope, you so much. Now I do hope people will contact you because you're an important part of the process. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to have been featured on your podcast and to be able to talk about these issues. Um, it's, it's really exciting to me to be able to share these points with everybody. And I hope people will reach out. I'm extremely passionate and excited about supporting providers and others who work in the community. So thank you for um, giving me your platform to do this. And thank you for doing this series of podcasts with so many other amazing people in the community. Well, it's a pleasure. And I'm really pleased, honored, actually, that you you got in touch and you came, you know, you're on the show and delighted. And I, I hope that we'll be hearing good news in the future. 
Uh, and if there is you something, will. if something does uh, uh, happen, perhaps you'll come back and we'll have another podcast dedicated to the whole area of uh, provider, um, you know, regulation and so on and so forth. Yeah, you will. There's something's definitely happening. Um, so look forward to talking to you about it in the future. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Juliana, and uh, all the best to you now. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.